This is Matt Hurt at Obsessive Viewer on Twitter. This is Tiny at Obsessive Tiny on Twitter. And this is Mike, and you can find me at I am Mike White on Twitter. And this is ObsessiveViewer.com's The Obsessive Viewer Podcast. Hello, and welcome to The Obsessive Viewer. We're a weekly movie and TV podcast that covers a specific topic, be it genre, trope, movie, or show, each episode. You can find back episodes at ovpodcast.com, find the blog at obsessiveviewer.com, and you can also subscribe to the subreddit at r slash obsessiveviewer. And if you want to help support the podcast, go to patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer, or you can simply leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It helps us out a ton. So, uh, today on the podcast, we're going to be discussing some a few news items that popped up, and also our main topic for the episode is music slash musician movies, uh, and then we're going to round out with our normal potpourri section. So, how's it going, guys? Very good. <laughs> nice. It sucks, Matt. Oh, that sucks. That sucks <laughs> to hear. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah. Non sequitur. Things are good. 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 Um, things are good on my end too. Um, yeah. Oh, okay. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> no, I actually got a new job, so hopefully, in the coming weeks, it doesn't affect my podcast. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited. It's starting in a couple weeks, but um, anyway, uh, that's neither here nor there. Let's talk news. Do you want to? News. Sure. Nice. Okay, so there are a few things I wanted to bring up first. All first off in the section for the news section. That's a good segue. Um. <laughs> The first one is that um, I, I guess DC has follow, uh, I'll just read from Slash Film. Uh, following the disappointing reception to Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice, Warner Brothers is reorganizing as a, its executive team. DC Chief Content Officer Jeff Johns and Warner Brothers exec, Executive Vice President John Berg will now oversee the newly created DC Films Division, which will handle the studio's fledgling DC Extended Universe franchise. In other words, DC finally has its own Kevin Feige, sort of. Um, so my question to you guys is, is the damage from Batman v Superman, um, is it salvageable for this for this extended universe? Can they salvage it if they, if they are reorganizing and theoretically restructuring the entire... Um, universe going forward is it is it salv salvageable in its current form i think so i mean they'd have to do something special and they'd have to make a hit um it is by all means possible will it happen i don't think so and i and i hope not i i just feel um you know i'm kind of an unabashed marvel fan and i just feel like if i were a dc fan i'd be ang very angry about how things have gone down and i just want warner brothers and everybody involved to to pay for the poor decisions that they've made um also interesting in the article that they say the the fledgling extended dc universe it's it's not very fledgling They've been trying and failing for a long time. I think that's a very generous way of saying that it's another fresh start. Right. Word. Yeah. I agree. I mean, yeah, that's that's uh that'd be the the version of film justice that I think uh we all deserve is that what Mike said that that, that it fails for the sake of them needing to learn a lesson, basically. Yeah. I agree. It seems like this is the kind of thing that should have been hammered down pretty much at the start. Yeah. And they, they should have oh, yeah, had their ducks in a row. yeah, it's reactionary, completely. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's really aggravating. 
and I don't I don't know. And it seems like they have such a decent handle, a uh, decent handle on the TV universe that they have with the Fla- with the Flash, Arrow, Supergirl now, all that stuff and Legends of Tomorrow. Like why couldn't they just not take that exactly and transpose it to um the big screen, but why not I and I want to say that Jeff Johns was responsible for uh helping I think Greg Berl- Berlanti um cultivate that um tv universe and everything why not do that from the beginning why not have everything straightened out and ready to go before man of steel hit theaters just i don't understand how they could have failed so badly um with all of this and even if you're a fan of batman v superman if you're a fan of man of steel and in the future if you're a fan of all these movies that's that's fine it's just it's pretty clear that they did not that they have they don't have the faith in their product anymore because of the reaction to these movies and it'll just be interesting seeing what they come up with yeah especially given the the high that warner brothers was riding through the end of the last decade because they had Mm -hmm. they had just had so many successes in a row they had the whole harry potter franchise which was like a couple billion dollars if not more They yep. just, they were just hitting on all cylinders. They were the most successful studio, and they managed to screw this up. Uh, well, and the Dark Knight trilogy. Dark Knight, yeah, that's Dark Knight. Which right. is it's huge yeah. and and critically acclaimed. Right. Do you guys think that Nolan and his take on the Dark Knight um, and his trilogy? Do you think that that had just such an adverse effect to them going forward into this? I guess new era of um, comic book movies. Like it seems like they they. I feel like they kind of wanted to take that tone and that the grittiness of Nolan's work and put it to their own expanded universe. And it just failed miserably because they, uh, I don't know. I I think that Marvel does it so well and is so fun that they can't really reconcile the grittiness and darkness to what is so ingrained in the audience's um, minds as supposed to be a fun adventure kind of thing. Yeah. You know what I, I think um, we we have said what we've liked for a long time. What we liked about the Dark Knight trilogy is is that it was dark. But, you know, that's not the sole thing, I think, that made those movies. And I think what we've learned is that what made those movies great uh, was Chris Nolan, right? Yeah. And and dark or light. I mean, I, you know, I feel if Adam West was it was Batman in a Chris <laughs> Nolan movie, the movies would be good because the movies were good, right? It's not like the tone of a movie doesn't make or break. Like if you say we're gonna go, we're gonna make an angry Batman, it does not a good Batman movie make. The mistake they made was giving the reins to Zack Snyder and saying do what you're gonna do, mm-hmm. and like you said, he. Um, he tried to make it dark, and I do think that they they uh, the, the the influence of Chris Nolan's darker vision was there. Uh, but I think they missed the mark of what was important. The Dark Knight is a good movie because it's a good, well made film, not because it's darker. Mm-hmm. True. Yeah, I agree. It tried to ride the coattails, and it did mm-hmm. not work. It was a gamble, and it just didn't pay off. And they entrusted one of. Uh, they entrusted someone who probably shouldn't have been entrusted with with this this franchise to to start it up on. Um, I will say that I will agree to that now retroactively, right? Because yeah. I was not as uh, uh, disenfranchised by 
that pick of Zack Snyder. Right. Because I was still a defender of him mm-hmm. back then. No, yeah. no more. No well, more. we all hated Man of Steel in our review four yeah. summers ago or whatever, right. right? Yeah. Yeah. And it does not age that well. Um, no. No. Ugh. You've seen it since? I watched it in preparation for Batman v Superman. Ah, uh, I, yeah. I didn't even pay it that. Oh yeah, it's yeah. it's not it's not good. Um, but moving on to the next news item, uh, Carrie Fukunaga might direct Stanley Kubrick's Napoleon for HBO. Um, this is really interesting. It's not confirmed or anything. It's it's all kind of up in the air. It's all rumored and everything. But basically, um, Stanley Kubrick he had this passion project that was supposed to be a biopic of of Napoleon Bonaparte. And he worked on it from like 1961 and throughout much of the rest of his career and just it was never made. So now it's rumored that Kerry Fukunaga, who, of course, did all of season one of True Detective and he did the uh, recent Beasts of No Nation, uh, that he is going to take the reins and do a turn it into a uh, miniseries for HBO, um, potentially produced by Steven Spielberg. So what do you guys think of this? Are you guys interested in it? Absolutely. And I'm really, I'm really surprised. Um, HBO, I th- I thought they were like completely getting away from miniseries. Cause I know they, mm-hmm. after, um, John Adams, I think they lost a ton of money on John Adams, Really, even though it was successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it won a bunch of awards, critically acclaimed and people tuned in, but I guess they, they poured like 150 million dollars into that miniseries and they just didn't make their money back on it mm-hmm. um and I, I thought i remembered reading an article several years ago like 08 or 09 that that they're either gonna stop doing miniseries at hbo or they're gonna really really scale back so interesting i, I guess the power involved with this mm-hmm. uh with this project being that it's a kubrick property mm-hmm. produced by spielberg and directed by Kerry fukunaga who's super hot right now right um i guess all that power maybe that influence them into doing it but uh i i'm super excited either way because mm-hmm. like i said i love all of those things together right kubrick fukunaga and spielberg that's, and that's you're a, a huge fan of historical epics obviously yes yeah, yeah. and so. I, re- I mean really i don't know very much about napoleon bonaparte me neither not something i've spent time researching or studying or anything right. so yeah i'm i'll be there yeah mike what do you think i uh, the exact opposite. I'm, no. All of those things combined are, are almost detractors for me. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I, I knew nothing about this, mm. and I, I'm not excited. I don't know. Interesting. Sorry. Uh, oh, no, no, you're fine. <laughs> uh, Carrie Fukunaga I know, that sounds super harsh. I feel like my reaction is such a dick reaction. But... <laughs> oh, that's okay. Just not. Did no, you ever watch? Just... Um, did you ever watch John Adams or Band of Brothers? Uh, I watched a little bit of Band of Brothers. wasn't particularly fond of it. Never okay. watched John. Adams. Interesting. So just, I don't like miniseries all that much. Right, just gotcha. not your thing. Yeah. yeah, gotcha. Um, yeah, I'm I'm excited for it. I'm. Uh, <laughs> I. It seems like the kind of like I echo a lot of the sentiments that Tiny shared and everything. But I would also say that it's it's interesting about the HBO miniseries thing because I, I don't know how their structure works. I don't know how their inner workings are. But now that you mentioned that, Tiny, it's funny because I don't think the Pacific was that well received or right. as well received as as Band of Brothers was. I mean, they're different, they're different beasts basically. But I mean, they're in the same vein. Right. But um, yeah, this is really interesting to me, and I'm very curious to see if it happens and and when it happens because Kerry Fukunaga is 
an amazing filmmaker. Like he's just he's flat out amazing. Like I wasn't too with Beasts of No Nation, I wasn't that I I wouldn't say I wasn't that crazy about it, but I was I wasn't as emotionally invested in it and as wowed by it as a lot of people were, but the just the technical aspects of it, the direction of it was just all like like jaw-droppingly amazing. So I'm really looking forward to seeing if he does this or if he backs out of it like he did with the It remake that I'm still a little sour on. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a bummer. Yeah. And uh, finally, for our last piece of news is um, uh, perhaps the biggest news. Is this news. a joke piece of news? No. No, it's not. No, uh, I mean, I, I know they're serious, but are you? No, no, no. I'm I'm not serious at all. It's it's <laughs> it's a travesty. Um, the Tetris movie is going to be a trilogy, and uh, apparently it's. This is quoting from Slash Film, uh, which which uh, got their um, got it from Deadline. But Deadline reports that producer Larry Kasanoff is currently in con in Cannes uh, to help sell the Tetris movie project to international buyers. Like the original announcement, plot details remain scarce, but it will be a science fiction film and, quote, not at all what you think. It will be a cool surprise. The news that it is the first in a trilogy is the rotten cherry on top of the moldy sundae. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is still from Slash Film. I'm normally of the opinion that each and every movie should await proper judgment in a theater, but everything about Tetris the movie makes my throat sting with vomit. <laughs> Rarely has a proposed movie felt so proudly greedy. And yeah, that's a little harsh. I, I will say that, but also they also point out in the article that this is Tetris, man. It's a it's it's a video game that has no plot, no characters, no theme, nothing like that. There's no way, there's no discernible way to to make it into a movie, and with that branding behind it, it's nonsense to me. It's it's really ridiculous. Somebody somebody either came in with a great idea, or the whole team behind this is literally, literally out of ideas. They yeah. have nothing but this idea. Yeah. Uh, Tetris. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know why. It's like, I feel like it's not going to be a Tetris movie because how can a movie be a Tetris movie? There's nothing to build on. I mean, that's kind of a funny pun. <laughs> but uh, nice. but seriously, though, there's there's just, there's nothing there. I don't understand... It's just going to be – it's not going to be the Tetris movie. It's just going to be the movie. Because, right. like, what, what's going to be Tetris about it? I don't – I don't know. And, I mean, it's it's kind of fun to rip on these these goofy property movies. Like, I mean, like Battleship and, yeah. and, and movies that are based on board games and video games and stuff like that. But yeah, this but is just it, – It's ridiculous. Yeah. Some of those movies have their own charm about them. Yeah. I, I mean – uh, Battleship was a pretty bad movie, but uh, certainly not the worst experience I had in theaters that year. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And and same I, with Ouija. Mm-hmm. You know, I forgot about Ouija. Um, and and also like I still stand by this that like there were there were rumors about a Monopoly movie, and I honestly think that that could be an interesting docudrama in the vein of like The Big Short or something to explain. Like, like as it wouldn't be like an action movie or anything like that. It would just be Monopoly in name. But I think that they could use that property to, to have an interesting take on like some of the economic issues facing the country and stuff like that in the vein of The Big Short. I think that that, I think that that is an amazing idea and that that should be explored. But I mean, 
Tetris, there's nothing there. Yep. So, Weird. Yeah. So, all right. So that's all the news we have. Uh, should we go on to our main topic, guys? Yep. Let's do it. All right. So this week we're talking about musician and musician movies, uh, which basically this idea, Mike, you pitched it to us, right? I did, yeah. And in fact, I think I've been... I don't know that I've been trying to pitch it or I had it in my head for uh, a couple years now to bring to the podcast. But, um, you know, I talk on, on the show a lot about uh, my interest in music and, and musicianship and like that and stuff like that. Uh, and a lot of times I'll bring up the music in movies that I love or movies that I love that are about music. And I just kind of realized that we'd never actually done a whole show dedicated to music or musicians uh, in movies or movies about those those topics. So I thought it'd be I thought it'd be a, a good place for us to go. I agree. Um, although I must have the uh, include the caveat here. I know nothing about music. Um, well, I, yeah, and and I know that, and I don't expect. You know, this is the obsessive viewer. We're not we're not obsessive musicians, and so I definitely want to come uh, uh, from these two different perspectives. And I and I hope that's what fac- facilitates good conversation here. Is that that I maybe talk a little bit about the musicianship in the movie, but. Uh, but even for the non music obsessed person what what these types of movies do for you because the uh, you know uh we know that music is a universal language whether you're obsessed with it the way some people are or not so um you don't have to be an expert yeah oh yeah and i, I like the way that you put that that's that's actually a really good uh hopefully that doesn't put too much pressure on this episode <laughs> <laughs> no pressure yeah no pressure <laughs> tiny what do you think of the topic and all that. Yeah, I've always wanted to do something like something like this as well because it's such a it's it's a melding of two two art forms mm-hmm. and, and you know I think I think film and music are inextricably linked like there's just something there like that there's it's always there you can't it's it's weird when a movie doesn't have any music in it you know you just, it it's right. just it just feels right to put the two together um, and so when you explore one art form exploring another is very. Uh, very interesting thing to look at so right so we've each got a couple of movies uh for this one and mike do you want to kick us off with your first one yeah i'll start it and and to prove that we're not taking this too seriously the first one i want to bring up is uh 1984's uh this is spinal tap so 1984 it's a rob reiner comedy uh it's it's the first of the 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 christopher guest uh michael mckean harry Shearer improv comedies that they you know they go on to do waiting for guffman best in show uh a mighty win movies like that um and all of those movies by the way uh i believe directed by christopher guest right i think you're right yeah Yeah. this one's directed by rob reiner and so this is this is rob reiner um and Rob Reiner is also in the movie. He plays Marty DeBerge, who is this uh, this film documentarian who wants to document uh, kind of the waning years of uh, self-proclaimed England's loudest band, which is uh, this band Spinal Tap, uh, led by Christopher Guest, Harrisier, uh and Michael McKean. And uh, the reason I wanted to bring this movie up and the reason I bring it up first is because being in a band uh, – I think if you talk to anybody who was ever in a garage band growing up, uh, it's kind of a rite of passage to have watched 
this is Spinal Tap. And um, there are, on the first record we ever put out, that we put like quotes from Spinal Tap and we just spoke with British uh, accents all the time. Uh, and I don't know, this is Spinal Tap is just kind of one of those movies that, you know, I, I think back about um, a, a, a recently deceased type of movie, uh, just like the endlessly quotable type of movie, which I don't think it's made anymore. Um, and I just, I just love to quote, this is Spinal Tap. I remember my uncle kind of introduced it to me and kept saying, you got to watch Spinal Tap. And, um, it's just a really, really good, um, um, uh, send up of of bands of that time and and I can't think of a whole lot of other mockumentaries from that time. I don't want to say it's the first because I don't want to speak out of line, but um it did it the best at least in 1984. Yeah, I I just uh within the last 2 hours finished this movie for the first time <laughs> and uh yeah, I I I loved it for all the reasons that you uh you said it's a really engaging uh, mockumentary in that it's it exists in this dry humor that it's it's a credit to the actors and the performers and everything that it's this world exists in this movie so effortlessly and so well that it's it's really incredible to see them do their thing and i mean it's hysterical and it's 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 almost to the point that you're legitimately laughing at them almost mean mean spiritedly yeah um but it's other oh, idiots for sure oh yeah oh yeah and it's just it's so funny to see them do this type or deliver this type of dry humor without without the self-awareness like the characters have like so little self-awareness that it's it's just magnificent to to see it play out um in the movie and and like <laughs> i realized that i that i really like this movie like the second that they it's like one of the opening scenes they're talking to the documentarian and they're saying that um they're talking about how they they first met and then they they had the name the originals and yeah. then <laughs> yeah. like that whole yeah. that whole But then there bit. was another band called the originals. Right. So we had to change our name yeah. to the to the new originals. <laughs> and then that band broke up and and we could have gone back to the originals but we thought what's the point? Right. <laughs> it's like that. By that, the way, do you like how I slipped into like I couldn't yeah. commit I did. to the accent and I just <laughs> slipped into it at the end. I love it. I love it. Yeah. But yeah, that bit was just so great and it set such a great tone for the movie and I really enjoyed it. And I'll definitely be seeing it again. Uh, Tiny, you haven't seen this movie in a while, have you? It's been a long time since I've seen it. And I think I think I was like in high school and it was mm-hmm. like parts of it were over my head and everything. Um, yeah. But damn it if I didn't laugh. I mean, um, I, I, I love I love it because it's um, because a lot of it's kind of true. I mean, it's like the bands were really this crazy and this goofy back in the 80s. Like, uh, it's one of the pieces of trivia for it on, on IMDb. Uh, Ozzy Osbourne said he's probably the only person who's ever watched it and never laughed because it's so true. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's just oh, like, wow. it's it's just that perfect kind of, that perfect kind of on-the-nose comedy where you, you take something, you take something ridiculous and you don't try to add comedy to it because it's already funny because it's ridiculous. Like yes. you don't you don't have to you don't have to try too hard. And uh, and I think everyone involved just got that. Like it's it's really impressive that so much of the movie's improvised. Um 
because I mean, obviously that's really hard to do, but you just have so many people on the same wavelength and they, they all have the ability to deliver very dry humor. Like Matt was saying, um, it's just a really impressive movie in, in that respect. Uh, it's, and, and I love it, you know, like, uh, like Mike was, when you were quoting it, you can't help but, you know, devolve, if you will, into a British accent because right. it's like just that in and of itself is, is, is very funny because none of the actors are British and, <laughs> right. and they're playing they're right. playing these British people. And it's like, it makes you wonder if, if there were any, of the you know the the British bands who who kind of the British invasion if if any of them were mm-hmm. just Americans who used a British accent because it was exotic <laughs> and different and I don't know it it kind of plays on that and it's it's just it's just crazy how in, how in, such an intelligent movie can be so stupid and funny yeah. it's right. it's really good yeah well well put I, I it is an intelligent movie it's a very smart movie but also really stupid i mean one, yeah. of, one of their hits is big bottom <laughs> right <laughs> right yeah, yeah I the, was the, cracking the, the up bigger the cushion that. the sweeter the pushing oh <laughs> uh, that was it's, the music is so great yeah yeah it really is the music <laughs> is awesome it's so stupid it's brilliant and mm-hmm. and it's funny because all again because all the actors like are they're they're musicians like they all know how to play mu- they all know how to play instruments and the soundtrack is actually all of them playing Yes, That's they don't. So you know, awesome. They didn't like hire musicians to play yes, it to make the music. So, I mean, yeah. it's 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 funny because it's so it's a mockumentary, but it just feels so authentic. Mm-hmm. It's 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 a really it's a kind of a one of a kind movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do, I you, uh, do you guys have favorite line? Oh, I don't because honestly, I don't really remember many of them. Yeah, I mean, that, my favorite part might just might be that that opening that scene that I quoted earlier. About the uh, the the band name, I thought that was just freaking brilliant. Yeah. How about you, Mike? Uh, I have a lot. I remember the first time I saw it. I I watched it with one of my bandmates, and we finally checked it out. We rented it from Blockbuster because my uncle said we had to, and we we didn't quite get it for maybe thirty minutes. Uh, and then and there's the scene where they come out of like uh uh the dinosaur eggs, whatever those are. And Harry Shearer, uh, Derek Smalls, the bassist, he he can't get out, right? Like, he's stuck while they're playing the song. And then as the song ends, he finally gets out, does, like, a rock fist, and then has to go back in because everybody else went back in. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Yeah. Yeah. I also like the, the, I mean, obviously everyone quotes the 11... The dial turning the dial to eleven scene. Um, I really like the the lead up to that, the guitar collection scene. I thought that was really well done. Yeah, and really, really hilarious. So yeah, it's all. I mean, it's all good. I think, think uh, the 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 lines. I mean, there's so many quotable lines. I also love that you know, like a good. Uh, improv comedy. There's there's the really big obvious jokes in there, but also very subtle. Uh, another line I like is at the end when um, uh, Nigel comes back to David St. Hubbins and he's he's talking about how um, you know he just wanted to say hey, and also uh, our management just told me that uh, Sex Farm just hit uh, number five on the charts in Japan, and then he goes. Uh, <laughs> Spinal Taps version of Sex Farm, like 
Who else has this a song called Sex Farm? <laughs> it's just such a subtle, you know. It, uh, uh, oh. uh, sex Farm has gone to number five in Japan. It's pretty big. Uh, Spinal Taps, Sex Farm. <laughs> I don't even just think I really so picked much. up on that. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. It's great. Yeah, yep. it's it's really good, and I'll, I'll definitely be revisiting it at some point. And it makes me want to check out more Christopher Guest's work. I really like Best in Show. Best in Show is one of the best movies ever. Mm-hmm. Best in Show is great. Waiting for Guffman, I think, is just as good. Yeah, nice. very good. Yeah, yeah Christopher Guest. Sweet. Um, anything more on Spinal Tap? Anything? No. Yes. No, I guess we could have also talked about A Mighty Wind, but have you guys both seen that? I haven't. I have not. That's like a. Is that a folk music kind of thing? It's the. It's they're a folk music. Gotcha. Yeah. How uh, is it? Sorry. It's it's good. It's the one. Uh, I've seen the rest of them a few times, but I've only seen a mighty wind one time. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this is Spinal Tap is the only film on IMDb that can be rated an eleven. Nice. Is it really? Yeah. That's so. Oh, perfect. that's so awesome. I don't have. It Thank pulled you, up. IMDb, okay. for that. That yeah. is fantastic. That's so cool. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. Uh, okay, uh, should we move on to the next one? Yep. Do it. All right, Tiny, do you want to? Absolutely. Uh, the second film is uh, on our list is also the uh, second film to star Michael McKean. Um, that's right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's true. 1994's <laughs> Airheads. Uh, pretty, uh, I think this movie kind of became an instant classic. I feel like when I was a kid, they showed this movie every weekend on Comedy Central or like yes. TNT or something. And I would watch it. Me and my brother would watch it like every weekend. Um, I really love this movie. Um, for those who are not in the know, it's about these this band who basically holds a radio station hostage to get their music played on the radio so they can get discovered and get a record deal and everything. Um, and it's, again, a pretty silly premise for, for a movie, but it's... It, just has kind of a lot of heart you know it's it's about these these kind of tortured struggling musicians who really just want to they just want to play music for a living and they want to be rock stars and they're willing to literally do anything to get there and so it's it's kind of it comes from a good place but it it's it ends up being a pretty silly comedy um it has a great cast to uh brendan fraser when when he was good uh steve buscemi who's always on point um Reference our entire summer of Sandler. Uh, Adam <laughs> yeah. Sandler is in this uh, in a supporting role, which I think is where he belongs. Yes, because yeah. um, he's very, very, very funny and passable as Pip. Very mm-hmm. enjoyable in this movie. Um, the late Chris Farley, who everyone loves. I mentioned Michael McKean. Uh, Judd Nelson is great in this. Um, Ernie Hudson. Gosh, I forgot he was the <laughs> he was one of the police officers in this. That's um, right. So it's just a, a great string of actors in this movie um joe montagna gosh he's great uh in this movie Ah, uh, yes yeah the, the great defensive end <laughs> yeah uh, the linebacker the, linebacker. the best <laughs> linebacker i've seen <laughs> um but yeah airheads is just one of those it, again it's another comedy so it's kind of it's kind of funny we brought up two comedies in a row mm-hmm. um but like i said it's it's rooted like in a good place i think and it's i think it's something that like musicians or or uh music-centric people can really relate to because it's it's really about how nuts these guys are for music for their talent so and it kind of i don't admittedly i we watched we watched this movie 
when was Summer of Sandlot? Like two years ago? A year ago? Two summers ago. Two summers ago. Two summers ago. Oh, it's still, we still we got some catching up to do. Yeah. Oh <laughs> God, it's still uh, weighs heavily on my mind. But um, but I remember like this is one of the early movies that we watched for Summer of Sandler, and I remember liking it quite a bit. Um, it especially in context with the rest of Sandler's crap. But um, one thing that I I kind of reflecting on it now, viewing it under the guise of music and musician movies, and my opinion of it. In, in that context is that it kind of it's a good example in my memory of um a movie kind of showcasing like someone's love of something like their art and and music and it's kind of a almost maybe maybe a time capsule for a time when you musicians like getting getting to hear your song on the radio is like the biggest thing in the world to these guys and i mean like now if you think about it now in terms of like the present day it's like you can throw your music on itunes or on Bandcamp and everything and and you know sell it digitally and i feel like the esteem of having a play on the radio maybe in mike maybe you can correct me but um maybe it's it's doesn't carry as much weight as it did back in 94 and that's kind oh, of one, an interesting 100 true nice nice yeah I agree and it's too. just it's an interesting look at a time when when the defining moment in your career and in, in your art is something that is so uh of that era so that's what i remember of it mike what do you got for it well yeah just to kind of go off of that um a movie we took off this list because we've talked about it so many times on this podcast or at least i have is that thing you do Mm -hmm. uh you know the, the tom hanks um and my favorite scene in that movie is actually when they hear their hit that thing you do uh on the radio for the first time Mm mm-hmm and so, yeah, I, I think you're spot on and kind of what that what that means to people. Um, uh, you know, I think you talked about that. I think you you really hit the nail on the head uh, about a bygone era. I also think what's interesting about this movie in 1994 uh, is that this is that's kind of when um, the grunge era was was kind of cresting. Um, mm. And so, you know, the airheads were not a grunge band they were they were kind of like post glam rock almost right they had the long hair and mm-hmm. um you know pre grunge post glam uh 80s metal uh and I, and i really think if we kind of thought too deep about this movie what i like is their struggle uh about um trying to get on the radio and trying to be heard and trying to find what their identity is um when their identity is kind of outmoded and they they're kind of living in the past and and um trying to fit in where where grunge won't have them which is kind of interesting because i think they're 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 trying to like play pop music on the radio is why they won't play them right or the radio station is going pop isn't it something like that or i think. think it's like soft jazz or something soft jazz yeah <laughs> it's something goofy and so, and so maybe my, maybe my analysis, maybe my metaphor breaks down there, but, uh, I, I do think there's something to be said for the fact that they're, they're not so grungy in the year that grunge broke. You know what I mean? Right. Right. Well said. Yeah. Also, Brendan Fraser was awesome back then. Yeah. He was, um, he really should have taken off, but mm-hmm. I don't know. I can't, I'm trying to think of the last thing I saw him in. Did you, did you guys ever see, um, Blast from the Past? Oh, that's oh, a great movie. Blast. Oh my god, I love it so much. Such an underrated movie. Oh yeah, I, that was one of those movies that were was always on like HBO or something or yeah on cable when when I was growing up and I watched it all the time. 
yeah. another really stupid premise for a movie that worked. It was just really yeah. funny, yeah. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh yeah, is there any more on uh Airheads? I can't really think of anything more to say about it. No. Nah. We talked about it uh in our Summer of Sandler, so I'll put links to that episode in the show notes for you to find. Please do. Which, by the way, also you can always find the show notes to this uh, podcast in your podcast app. Or if it doesn't have like hyperlinks or anything, you can always go to obsessiveviewer.com slash OV168. I hope that's the right number for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, moving on. Uh, my first one, I guess, of, of the two I have is um, High Fidelity, which... Admittedly, I haven't seen this movie in a long time. I've only seen it maybe twice. Um, and I have this weird kind of aversion to John Cusack. I, I think that he's kind of bland and he doesn't have that much charisma to him. And especially in this movie where he's kind of moping around, I, I kind of feel like that that performance and that, that uh, the way that he carries himself in this movie is kind of transposed into my mind into or is in my mind transposed to pretty much any role i see him in <laughs> like he's like that for like one scene in hot tub time machine and for some reason it just bugs me so much because it's it kind of seems like that's that's kind of almost his shtick and maybe that's my just my perception of him based on one thing or or something maybe that's my my problem but it just he never really grabbed me as an actor but uh, High Fidelity is an interesting movie, and I think that it's worthy of talking about in this context because it's it's kind of a simple a simple kind of idea in that it takes what people love about music and it's it's it shows us this bond that people have with music and that he's he's going through um, like uh, his top five breakups and it's just this it's this kind of thing that you know if you're obsessive about something it's something that you carry it with you and you you um take it with you like your music interests and stuff like putting top 10 lists and everything and making lists of things and putting that into your real life that's just something that people do in this context and i really enjoyed the scenes with him and jack black and um i can't remember the other actor but in the record store it's just it's an interesting take on uh, music fandom and that music is kind of a big part of his life and he's using it to um i don't know if i would say rationalize but kind of contextualize his heartbreak and his his uh experiences and relationships i think that's just a really unique premise and i've never read the book by uh nick hornby but uh yeah i don't know i i, I enjoyed the movie i need to revisit it but that was my perception of it um he definitely episode. he definitely tries to contextualize uh, his life using music, and I I think that's a good point because uh, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is when he's rearranging his record collection, mm -hmm. and the other friend who is not Jack Black, right. <laughs> which is really all you need to know, uh, <laughs> comes in and he and he's kind of looking around and trying to figure out. He's like not alphabetically, uh, <laughs> and he's like chronologically, no, and he goes. Uh, autobiographically and so he's rearranging his record collection autobiographically based on his life which uh is really like that whole scene that moment that type of attitude is a microcosm for the tone of the rest of the movie right how, mm -hmm. how do you compartmentalize your life and um uh, at one point he says he 
and I'm and I'm butchering this, so I'm sorry if you're a big fan of High Fidelity, but he talks about how uh, he has to remember that there was uh, a record that he bought for a girlfriend, but wasn't able to get it for her, give it to her, so he got it back or something like that. But just you know, having to um, think about and pay attention to those nuances that uh, that has to do with uh, music in a particular time in his life is kind of interesting because I think it's a thing we do. Um, I don't know about you guys, but uh, I think about, you know, when a particular season hits, I'm like, okay, it's time to listen to my October music. Um, Matt, I know not really the case because you basically just listen to Motion City soundtrack, but other people. I also listen to music that I hear in movies. Yeah. So there's yeah. that. <laughs> While you're watching movies. Not, yeah. <laughs> don't be confused. He doesn't download the soundtracks. Uh, I I also agree. I you know I'm not a big John Cusack, uh, John Cusack fan either. Um, I, and I think that the his character's personality kind of comes through. But I also uh, think we get a glimpse of why Jack Black became popular. We're also not we're not going to talk about Tenacious D on this podcast, but we could have. That's a that's a fun fun music movie. Right. Yeah, high, I think High Fidelity is a great a great entry for this genre or subgenre if you will because uh it's not about musicians, it's all about it's about people who really aren't musicians but people who are fans of music and how it how music takes you for, at least for I think a lot of people and, and for for me music takes you back to a specific time. Like if you hear a specific song, it makes you think about a specific time in your life. Um, I, I think everyone has examples of that, and and this movie is really just a bunch of collections of that, mm-hmm. and, and and that's it's so relatable that I think that's part of the reason why people love this movie. Um, I I was shocked when when I looked at this uh, at High Fidelity and realized it came out in the year two thousand. Because this just feels Whoa, really. I know, right? <laughs> this this feels like one of those movies that was like so so popular in the late eighties and nineties, where it's like the leading the the leading man is like very introverted and sensitive, and he's defined by his relationships. Like the men were just like a lot of the leading men in these kinds of movies in the eighties and nineties were just lovers. Like their entire their entire existence was revolved around the people they the women they loved um like like clerks mm-hmm. you know the main the brian the main character in clerks most of his inner turmoil in that movie is about his relationship with his girlfriend and he they're they're very uh introverted and and, and kind of brooding and moody um pansies kind of basically and they're all <laughs> you know they're always complaining about stuff and it's, it feels like one of those movies but it came out in 2000 so i don't know if it's on the tail end of that trend or what i wish i had some other examples but uh mm-hmm. it just has that feel to it um but you know what i really i guess i can kind of relate to that um th- that's this movie just has relatability all over it um mention the great cast uh I think people realize how good Jack Black could be in this movie. I I think when you I'm sorry I don't remember which one you said that. Um, but he's again great as a supporting actor. But uh, uh, yeah, so I I like High Fidelity a lot. I need I need to see it again. Um, obviously a great soundtrack. Um, yeah, it's 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 a good one. It's the kind of movie that 
at its heart, like 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 we've talked about, he's obsessed with music, and he, music is a big part of his life, and everything like that. And like, I feel like as someone who is doesn't have that personal connection to music, like like I'm not, I'm I'm an obsessive viewer, not an except uh, obsessive music fan, but it's something that is very relatable, just in terms of seeing an obsession. Um, in a movie basically. And I, it's funny because I think we actually talked about the, the, I brought up this comparison when we talked about baseball movies and we kind of ironically talked about fever pitch, which is also based on a Nick Hornby book. Um, but like it just seeing, just seeing someone who is so defined by this part of their life and seeing it play out on, in a movie is something that I can relate to personally because my kind of my thing is movies and TV shows, and like Mike mentioned the scene where he's organizing his, his record collection. I've done that with my DVD collection. I remember at one point I had my DVD collection, um, <laughs> organized in chronological order by the, um, setting of the movie. <laughs> wow. So yeah, that was back in that high school. That must have been like before you had a hundred. Right? Oh, it was, <laughs> oh Mike, oh Mike. It was probably when I had like 150, I think probably maybe. Right. Uh yeah, wow. that was back in high school, and I mean I was very popular with the ladies because of that. Yeah, uh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so it's just that's an angle of the movie that I could connect with, even if I'm not a big um music fan. Um, word. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> uh, should we move on, or is there anything more on uh high fidelity? I think, no, I think that's good. Cool. Yeah. Sweet. Um, Mike, do you want to bring us into uh, or or bring up your next one? Yeah. Um, so we, we've we kind of mostly done comedies so far. I, I think you, you could call High Fidelity a dramedy, but the other two are definitely uh, comedies. So to kind of uh, move out of that but also uh, stick to um, – uh, not necessarily musicians, but people who are interested in music, although there are musicians, in uh, Almost Famous, also from uh, 2000, uh, the year 2000. And this is actually, if I remember correctly, uh, one of my favorite uh, writers, Roger Ebert's favorite movie. Oh, nice. Wow. Yeah. So directed uh, and written by Cameron Crowe, uh, starring... Uh, Billy Crudup as the uh, lead singer of a band. It's got Kate Hudson. Uh, Jason Lee is in there. Zoe Deschanel is in there. Um, I'm trying to think. What, what's the name of the young reporter? Uh, oh, Patrick Fugit. Patrick Fugit, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I just it, – it's, it's kind of a long movie and, um, you know, it's not – I think in some ways it was kind of touted uh, as a comedy, and there are certainly some comedic moments. But um, I, I think you know I I love the movie best when it kind of hits the end, and you you kind of see the um, this tumultuous career of this band. Um, but then at the end, when he he uh, the the young man interviewing this band, following this band around. Uh, writing for Rolling Stone kind of tells him, uh, you know, they when they decide to have their real interview, and then he asks um, Billy Crudup's character, "So, so, what do you love so much about music?" Uh, and then his response is, "For starters, 
everything. And it's always just kind of been one of my favorite movie lines. And I think uh, for that alone, I would I would include that on a list of must see music movies. Nice. I, uh, I again, this is another movie that I haven't seen in a long time. And from my room, uh, from the way I remember it, it's kind of a it's an interesting movie. I think I want to say it's almost semi autobiographical. Um, yeah. Camera Crow's experience. Yeah. And the kind of running thing with the movie for me is that it's it's kind of a almost coming of age kind of movie where it's the, the main character is kind of meeting meeting his idols and he's assigned to this to basically get a story on them or, or if I'm remembering correctly. It's just it's an interesting take on someone's fandom of something and and, and that experience of meeting people that you are influenced by and so enamored with and the overall experience of just being a kid in this, in this, uh, in a unique position. And I really, I really enjoyed it. I need to revisit it, but that was my kind of main takeaway from it. And, uh, when I saw it, I actually own it, I think. So I, I'll need to dig it out and see it. Tiny, what'd you think of it? You know, I actually, uh, I also really need to revisit this movie because I think I saw it when it came out and I thought it was very overrated. I oh. I really was not crazy about it. Um, wow. And and the thing is, I can't really I can't defend that opinion because I just haven't seen the movie in so long. Um, but it, without question, belongs on this list I, for all the reasons you guys mentioned. You know, it's it, it, I I love it that it's from I, I love that the movie's from the perspective of, of a fan who is like thrust into basically like a fantasy. I mean, the only thing that could be more uh, fantastical about what happens to this kid is if he like was accepted into the band and was like playing with them, you know, um, it, it's, it, I, the perspective of it makes it a very, very quality story just, just from the perspective. Um, uh, and I do remember the cast being really impressive. Uh, Billy, Billy Crudup is kind of here and there kind of actor. I mean, I feel like he, He'll be in a really good movie, and then he'll like he feels like he won't see him for like three years or something. I, I don't know. Yeah, he was just um, in yeah, the big short, sure. wasn't he? Uh, yeah, he was in he was in Spotlight. Spotlight, Spotlight, Spotlight. That's what I'm yeah. thinking of. Yeah. So, um, but you know, this movie launched Kate Hudson, who also I'm not really a fan of. Um, I've never been impressed. Yeah, she's she's also one of my least favorite parts of this movie. Is she okay? Yeah, she's kind of the kind of free spirit pseudo love interest right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah it's it's kind of it's kind of i don't know it, it feels like she they tried to meld two archetypical characters together and it kind of worked but it's i don't know I, I i again i can't i can't really defend my uh not flattering opinion of the movie um <laughs> i bet if i saw it again like as an adult now i'd probably appreciate it a lot more um but yeah the, the rest of the cast also francis mcdormand Awesome, Jason Lee, Zoe Deschanel, uh, Feruza Balk. Gosh, I can't even remember her in this movie. <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman. So yeah, uh, I really just need to see it again. Um, but an interesting, an interesting uh, take on the the music movie. Yeah. I I hope it doesn't feel like we're giving it the short shrift uh, because it's kind of been a while since I've seen it too. But um, it really is one of my favorites, and and you know it paints a picture of a time. It paints a picture of an attitude. Uh, It it's very um, well, like I said, indicative of a time. But I I think about I just recently watched. Have you guys been watching documentary now at all? I haven't, but I've I've heard about it. Is it any good? 
It's hilarious. Nice. It's hilarious. <laughs> it's nice. very much in the vein of Portlandia, but but better at times. Gotcha. Nice. Wow. And so it's got Bill Hader and Fred Armisen, and they are they star in uh, a, just a series of send up mockumentary films, right? Uh, and so I think it's I think the first season is six or seven or eight episodes long. Okay. Uh, and the so the last two episodes are about a band called the Blue Jean Committee, uh, <laughs> and just their uh, trials and tribulations if you will. And it re- reminded me a lot of almost famous and just kind of what a band goes through. And, um, I don't know. I, I just, I really love almost famous. And, uh, I, I, I feel bad that we're not giving more time to it. But, right. Uh, we'll have to do a Cameron Crow retrospective. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah edit the list. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, yeah, I, it feels just like a personal movie, like a really personal movie for Cameron Crow. So I, I appreciate it for that. And yeah, like, like we've all said, uh, we need to revisit it. But, um, I want to point out that Cameron Crow, he, like when tiny said that he kind of was a little disappointed by it. Um, Cameron Crow's kind of an acquired taste or he's, he's kind of hit a little hit or miss. And I know that tiny, you weren't a fan of Aloha. Oh, it was terrible. I don't think anyone was, Yeah, but, um, it's interesting because his next, his next thing that he's working on is actually going to premiere. It's his first TV show. um, project that it's going to be on showtime it's called um roadies and it's going to premiere on june 26th my birthday but um the plot is a road crew helps with the rock band's major multi-city tour so i mean that could be pretty interesting i know next to nothing else about it it's got luke wilson carla gugino 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 uh and imogen poots and uh yeah it seems seems like it could be interesting i could Um, i could see him Doing well in a television environment. Yeah. Cameron Crow. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Cool. Uh, so, should we move on? Whose turn is it? Uh, it nice. is my turn. Nice. Uh, I'm about to bring up uh, Mom's Spaghetti. <laughs> it's vomit on my sweater already. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I, have you guys seen that meme? Yes. Ew. That's that's a common, uh, that's a long-running joke with my wife and I. We it, it's, <laughs> it, I don't even know that she's ever seen. No, she has. She likes 8 Mile. But uh, a lot of times we'll do the we'll do the mom spaghetti mom spaghetti. Hey Amanda, <laughs> so awesome! Oh God, <laughs> come here for come here for a second. Do you guys mind? No, no, no not at all. <laughs> Will you talk really quick about Eight Mile and and mom spaghetti? There you gotta get close to the mic. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> Just talk. <laughs> Matt, give give her a give her a prompt. Okay, I thought you were gonna say beat. I was like, wait. <laughs> 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 Um, you guys didn't know I could rap. No, <laughs> I had no idea. I had a so sneaking good. suspicion. You look like a rapper, right? <laughs> um, so if I'm walking down the street, not like my um palms are kind of sweaty, and my knees, <laughs> my knees are weak, and my palms are a little sweaty. Uh, what what would be on my sweater? I don't. That's a terrible prompt. I don't know what. <laughs> I don't understand. I don't understand either. <laughs> but he looks calm and ready I to think drop it's bombs. Because there's this meme online. You can probably find it. There is. Yeah. About, it's like mom spaghetti. I got mom spaghetti on my spaghetti already. <laughs> mom spaghetti. <laughs> there's there's an entire video of basically. Basically, the entire song, Lose Yourself by Eminem, the entire music video, it's all recut 
to where he's just saying mom spaghetti over and over again. <laughs> and it is glorious. It's so it's, funny. It's so... It's, it's the best line of any other song in the it's world. It's amazing. Oh, yeah. And people, Everyone knows mom's spaghetti. Mom's right. spaghetti. Spaghetti already. It's mom's spaghetti. <laughs> Got spaghetti on my spaghetti already. <laughs> oh, yeah. But it's... All right. It, <laughs> you, what do you think of the movie 8 Mile? My always one of my favorite movies. In when was I middle school, high school, high school, yeah. I remember um, them having sex in the storage room or something, like with the box. (laughs) Yeah, that's a pretty hot scene. That's like the main thing that I remember from the movie. (laughs) Yeah, she's dead now. Like I was a sophomore high school. (laughs) She's a tiny. Good right. times. Okay. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> Thanks, Amanda. Yeah. <laughs> she just left. So <laughs> we totally hijacked your segue into Eight Mile. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> but oh, hey, uh, cameo first appearance of my son on the podcast. That's true. Yeah. yeah he was in the room. Little Matthew White. Little Matthew Tiny White. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. So, so anyway. You can cut all that if you want. Go ahead, Tony. <laughs> I might make it the tag. Nice. <laughs> if I do, I'll probably keep it in. But go ahead. So obviously we're referencing the perennial classic 8 Mile from the year 2002 uh, when Eminem was the biggest thing in the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, he just yeah. dominated the early 2000s with pop culture references and wanting to kill his wife and uh <laughs> his daughter Haley was referenced in like every song it's like yeah eminem was the early 2000s and and eight mile was just another entry in his uh in his life and we all loved it and, and I, I i haven't seen this movie in a while but i watched it a lot <laughs> when i was a kid and and i kind of wonder like was this movie was this movie like actually pretty good or was it just that Eminem was the biggest thing in the world? Um, no, this movie is good. Uh, that's what I thought. It like, is I, good. I think it is actually a pretty good movie. Nice. I mean, it's it's you can say that it's pretty silly because some of the main conflict is a rap battle. <laughs> um, that's a little silly in and of itself. But you, I mean, you can't see something like the rap battles that happen in this movie and not be impressed with the skill involved in it i mean if if you've never tried try to think up a song on the spot that rhymes and it's like most people can't do it i sure as hell can't right and it's it's actually a very in my opinion i think it's a very impressive skill and i i think it's it it can be very uh impressive to watch if that's your thing Mm -hmm. so i mean again it's kind of silly but i i i think again there's a lot of heart involved in this movie and and i think it just it really it's it's a version of the life that uh eminem uh marshall mathers had as as a kid coming up you know i've heard him talk in interviews uh about how important rap battles were to him and how it, it it gave him something to focus on and it gave him direction in life and you know he the way he talks about Rap, rap battles is the way a lot of teenagers talk about like their football games on Friday nights and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So, I mean, that's that's something that I think a lot of people can connect to, and it's something I respect. Um, and also, this this movie again, we keep 
I keep bringing up the cast, but this has a really impressive cast. Uh, pretty yeah. pretty unknown Michael Shannon at mm-hmm. the time, Kim Basinger, Brittany Murphy, Mackay Pfeiffer, and I think everybody's uh, an unknown Anthony Mackie, who I'm a huge fan of. Right. Um, I I think everybody did a really good job in this movie. Um, again, I I don't know. Like Eight Miles become kind of a punchline and a meme, uh, as was referenced. Um, but Mom's I, spaghetti. Yeah, <laughs> I I think I think it's that's all from the foundation of a pretty pretty solid movie. And, and yeah, I I wish I wish I almost didn't like it so much <laughs> because it's Eight Mile. I don't know. I. I haven't seen it in a long time. Yeah. But I mean, so in high school, that's when high school I started looking at IMDb and stuff like that. And I would rate things. I would post on the message boards and stuff. I remember this. Uh, currently on IMDb, eight miles a ten out of ten. <laughs> From high school, I mean, I freaking love this movie. <laughs> Me too. I think it's a good movie. We're 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 kind of treating it strangely. It's well, and, and I think it's because of that mom spaghetti meme. I, yeah, you know, I think it might it might be the meme, and it might also just be because. This movie really shouldn't work because on paper it's it's an autobiographical movie about the hottest rap star of the time yeah starring the rap star and um yeah. all it's about him not, struggling it on paper you pitch it you pitch it and it sounds like a punchline uh, absolutely absolutely yeah. and i mean i like i was a big Eminem fan and the uh um the soundtrack is incredible it is it's it, absolutely yeah. incredible, and like the the song "Lose Yourself" won an Emmy or a, an Oscar. Yeah, and you know, I'm sure, I'm sure that the you know the hit song didn't hurt. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, and it was huge, huge. Um, yeah, I, and I kind of feel like some of it might be a little forced if I go back and rewatch it. Um, if I go back and rewatch it now, I feel like some of some of the elements of it could be a little forced, like maybe the romantic subplot with Brittany Murphy and um, some of the other things. But at its heart, the the struggle of um, of Eminem, B Rabbit, um, him yeah, again. <laughs> his name's B Rabbit, right? So dumb. It is. It is. The character's name is Jimmy Smith. It's like the most generic name you can think of for a character. But it, I think that the the trials and tribulations that he goes through, the the journey that he goes through from being a, a choke artist and like humiliating himself um, to the end where he kind of, you know, he becomes becomes not a star. And that that's another thing that I really liked about the movie is that it doesn't show how Eminem became a huge rap star. It shows how this character based heavily on Eminem, how he kind of goes through this one point in his life and become accepted by this by this group of of this audience and into this culture and everything and i just i thought that i i thought that his final like uh rap battle was just i thought that was just the 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 best thing of of the entire movie i thought that was just so cool and so clever how it kind of wrapped all together and everything yeah um wrapped with an r yeah uh (laughs) (laughs) uh-huh but yeah (laughs) yeah Mike, how do you feel about Eight Mile? You know, I don't. I don't think I can say anything that hasn't already been said by you guys and my wife. Uh, <laughs> what my what my wife says goes. 
<laughs> no, I, I I feel the same way as you guys, and 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 it's a weird, um, you know, you bring it up, and I and I'm sure if if you brought it up in a group of people and said Eight Mile is one of my favorite movies, half of them would say really, and the other half would say I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, it, it's just, so it's just a weird, it's a it's a weird thing. I I don't know that we can you know point to specific performances and say you know the movie shines because of that. Um, but I but I do think Eminem in particular impresses. Uh, I, I think he kind of surprised a lot of people with mm-hmm. his chops. Uh, um, I don't think Brittany Murphy was all that good, and and all right. due respect, rest in peace. Mm-hmm. I don't think she was that good of an actor anyway. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, um, Loved so her she didn't surprise. I, I I like Mackay Pfeiffer as as the friend type. Um, mm-hmm. But other than that, it's not, it's not the performances that blow you away. Blow you away. It's it's, and I've always thought Kim Basinger is a terrible actress. Right. Um, it's really, uh, it's really the story that just somehow, some way works. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. I again, yeah, I, I I did make a lot of fun of it, but it it is a good movie. It has a seven point out of ten on IMDb. Uh, if that's any indication. I, I don't know. I, it is it is a good movie, but it's just very easy to make fun of. Yeah. Um, uh, directed by Curtis Hansen, who, uh, uh, like five years previous to 8 Mile, directed L.A. Confidential. Yeah. Which is one of my favorite crime movies. Love that movie. Yeah. And uh, so, so, again, IMDb ratings. I uh, don't remember when I rated L.A. Confidential, but... I rated it an eight out of ten. So apparently, <laughs> at some point, yeah, in my you life, you forced me to watch that movie freshman year. L.A. Confidential. Yeah. Did you? It, it was you one of the ones that you insisted upon. Yeah. It was okay. I wasn't blown away. Okay. Yeah. I I love it. I I yeah. definitely love it. Um, me too. But I just thought it was funny that I gave Eight Mile a ten out of ten, <laughs> which I'm sure was a knee jerk reaction at the time. <laughs> and L.A. Confidential, which I I as Mike said, insist people watch uh, an 8 out of 10. But yeah, I, I enjoyed it, and I uh, I need to revisit it. I, I really do. Um, yeah. yeah. yeah, It's worth it. I think I might still own this movie on DVD. Oh, I know oh. I do. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah. I'm, I think I should, like, I feel ashamed that I do, but like, <laughs> it's a good movie. I don't know why, I don't know why I have this apprehension hmm. with 8 Mile, but I bet if Amanda and I can squeeze out some time, we will we will watch it. Nice. Maybe not before she squeezes out a baby, but. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so that's that's Eight Mile. Um, I feel like we're all gonna revisit this probably tonight yeah. after we finish recording. <laughs> and also, it's worth mentioning this was such a huge hit. Yeah. Um, the budget for the movie was forty-one million, and the box office wow. results. Yeah, the box office take was two hundred and forty-two million dollars. Jeez, that's insane. Yes, it is. Yeah, um, yeah. So I don't know. Go Eminem. Um, so I think this is this the last movie we've got. I think so. Yeah. yeah. So I'll round us out with the last movie. Um, uh, 2005's Walk the Line, and so there there are a ton of different music biopics that kind of take the same same kind of trajectory same kind of story 
um, or story beats for every each one. Like a lot of people kind of malign the music biopic, and Walk the Line, I think, is the kind of move, music biopic that um, kind of breaks that mold by still staying in the mold because <laughs> it's <laughs> it's definitely a uh, kind of it, it's part of the tried and true formula of music biopics, but it's done so well and performed so well that it's it kind of breaks through that uh that negative sheen on it and uh, this is another movie that I haven't seen for a while I've I watched it in 2005 at USI actually um in the theater and I mean I really I really was taken with it I really liked it and it's the kind of movie that I think music biopics are the are that succeed are the ones that make you invested in the music as much as the character. And Johnny Cash is a, is a musician that I, I was, had a passing familiarity with, but the, the movie, the way that all of the uh, story beats were, were presented and, and uh, depicted made me really invested in both the character and the story of, of Johnny Cash and his music. And that's something that is kind of rare in, in music biopics, at least when I watch them. And, I just I really really enjoyed this movie. I actually still own it also and I really need to rewatch it again. Uh what did you guys think of it? I I really agree uh pretty wholeheartedly. I think uh, I think the one of the most impressive things about it is that I mean Johnny Cash is just to, at least to me just larger than life. I first heard Johnny Cash when I was like I I have a vivid memory of riding in my grandfather's old pickup truck an old Ford F-150, and he loved Johnny Cash. And I remember listening to One Piece at a Time as like a five- or six-year-old and like laughing at the the audacity of the the story of that song, which I still think is just a magnificent song. Um, so t- to me, Johnny Cash is like more than iconic. And so I was so skeptical. I was like, no one can ever play Johnny Cash. Like, it just can't, it just can't be done. But Joaquin Phoenix completely embodied him very well it, w- without like without like doing an impression. You know, it wasn't he wasn't like a cheap impressionist trying to com- perfectly mimic his voice, and mm-hmm. he he just tried to. I think he really respected uh, what made Johnny Cash unique, um, his unique playing style, and uh, he was so like such a bassy and baritone kind of voice, uh, which was sort of contrary i guess at the time um and and just his his rebel rebelliousness i guess uh the the performance the performance from walking phoenix for me really makes the movie um but i i don't want to take anything away from the other people in in the movie uh specifically reese witherspoon who uh, for me unquestionably this is her best role um i think she knocked it out of the park uh Deserving I, of her Oscar. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so I, I really, I really love this movie. Um, but I was, des- I think I was almost destined to because I have, I'm such a big fan of Johnny Cash. Um, I, I, I love what they, what they did, the, the direction they took, and how, how they developed the character. I, it's a good movie. I mean, that's all there is to it. It's not even about the music <laughs> for me. It's, it's, it's about the really good. It's just a good movie. Mike, how about you? 
Yeah, I feel the same. Um, I, I This was kind of one of those time and place movies, and I remember um, going to the theater uh, and, and seeing it uh, with a, uh, as a double feature. Um, I will admit that I snuck into this movie. Uh, so we, we actually, we went to see a couple weeks prior, good night and good luck and the film reel messed up. So they gave us free tickets. Uh, and then a couple weeks later we went to see good night and good luck on their dime and then snuck into walk the line. So we saw two movies for the price of none. Um, <laughs> uh, so that's that backstory that is totally meaningless anyway. <laughs> um, I, you know, everything you guys have said though. It's it's a it's a great movie. I know it was um, one of the Oscar favorites that year, and um, you know, Matt, you mentioned how it, it was kind of uh, it 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 breaks the mold by adhering to the mold at times, mm-hmm. um, and I and I really like that a lot about it. Um, but really, kind of like Tiny said, I, I think it's in the performances, and I think it's in Joaquin Phoenix's performance. Um, it's it's a sh- I don't know that Joaquin Phoenix has recovered fully from the the I'm still here thing experiment because um, yeah, man, he I, I feel like he should have exploded after Walk the Line. I, yeah. I feel like he could have been the biggest star on the planet. And he's one of them for sure. Right. I, I yeah. don't mean to say he's a nobody now, but right. um, I, I, I kind of miss him a lot. And I was disappointed to see um, how that, how that kind of worked out. Uh, there are some early scenes as a musician that I really get into. I like watching them uh, cut the first record and, yes. uh, I really love uh, the the upright the the bass line that kind of goes on as they're cutting the first record, and you can kind of see how the band kind of gets it as they go along, uh, which is really cool. Um, just an overall good movie. Like like we've said before, it was one of the movies where right after I saw it, I like had to have the soundtrack. Begged my mom for it for Christmas. That makes me sound like a little kid. I, I was in college, <laughs> <laughs> but I had a Christmas list. Sue me. <laughs> uh, and I and I had to have it. Nice, nice. I remember Mike that this was one of those movies that we. I don't know if we went together to get it, but we we would always in college we would always have uh, midnight Walmart runs when yeah. uh, when new movies came out. And yeah, I remember that this was one that we both bought the day of release. We did. Um, I remember. Yeah. Did we watch it that night as well? I don't think so because I think I've only seen it in the theater. I don't even think I've watched it since I bought it. Really? I yeah. I really don't think I have. Wow. Eleven years later. Eleven years later. I think it might be time. Um, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Talk about your stack, man. Right. I like that's one of the things that I need to do is I need to organize my DVDs and figure out which ones I need to watch uh, that I haven't seen or haven't seen in a while since I bought them. So mm-hmm. yeah, that'll be fun. But um, so so Mike, something came up in the pod chat that surprised me. Um, you've never seen Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story. I have never seen uh Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story. Interesting, because it's kind of a parody slash play on uh basically Walk the Line. Yeah, Walk the Line and every other music biopic. Yeah. Tiny, have you seen it? I'm I'm just throwing this out there as a tangential part of the Walk the Line discussion. I have, and I thought it was actually really funny. Uh, yeah, me too. I mean, I think everybody thought it was funny, right? But, and and it was it was a fun, a fun kind of takedown of Walk the Line. I think mm. there's, I I don't know. I mean, I, th- I think there's some like over dramatic, overly dramatic moments in Walk the Line, or 
when you really think about it or kind of step back and look at it, it's a little like the part where he rips the sink off the wall. <laughs> they play that. They they make fun of that repeatedly. It's a running joke throughout Dewey Cox, and it's really it's it's really funny. Um, so I I don't necessarily appreciate the takedown of Walk the Line, but. Right, it, you got to give credit where credit's due. It's funny, but it kind of spoils the music biopic for a lot of people. Like, yeah, I, I I haven't seen a lot of them because Walk Hard parodied them so well. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I I highly rec- the whole point of this is Mike. I highly recommend checking out Walk Hard because it's really it's really good. I'll add it to the list. Yeah. Nice. <sighs> Speaking of collections, uh, my grandfather had like, like uh an old he had like an original copy of Folsom Prison Blues on vinyl oh wow we used to listen to it when we were kids I have no That's idea cool. what happened to it <laughs> makes me mad because I don't know I, I'd love to have it but nice. I remember listen to, listening to it as a kid and, and being impressed okay yeah so I mean there are tons of music slash musician movies that we could discuss um, and and maybe this is a Subject that we can revisit at a later time mm-hmm. in another episode because I mean there are tons. Yeah. Um, we left a lot of good ones out, and yeah. we kind of cut some of the ones. I think we said this. We kind of cut some of the ones we've talked about a lot. So yeah, maybe with the passage of time, we can revisit some of those important ones. Absolutely. Maybe I'll gain. Maybe when we do that, I'll gain a better appreciation of the Blues Brothers. Um, I thought you liked Blues Brothers. I thought it was okay. It was just kind of. I don't think I got it. I just didn't get it. I thought that it was just kind of a string of different vignettes, and it didn't really have a big. It didn't really feel cohesive to me. I liked the like the the um, car chases and in the the uh, the action shots of the car chases and stuff, but everything else it just kind of fell flat for me. Yeah. yeah. All right. Sorry, I know it's one of your favorite movies. It's whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We'll revisit it in part two. We will. We will. And that'll that'll come at a later date. But for now, we should close out the episode with some potpourri. How do you guys feel about that? Let's Pot, do it. Potpourri. Yes. Potpourri. So, <laughs> that sounded like I was correcting you. I didn't, I mean, <laughs> I didn't mean that inflection. Um, <laughs> no, potpourri, actually. <laughs> sure you didn't. Um, anyway, for first-time listeners of the podcast, potpourri is the section of the podcast in which we basically wind down the, wind down the episode with a brief discussion and, and um, bringing up things that we've watched lately, things that we're looking forward to, things of that nature. We call it potpourri. The tagline for it is whatever we want, as long as it smells good. And uh, Mike, how about you get us kicked off? Would you like to what? <laughs> the phrasing was all off. How would you like to get us kicked off for potpourri this episode? Yeah, I want to. I want to talk about Hush, uh, which is. I think it. I think it hit the festival circuit. Uh, caught a lot of buzz there. It, it might have been in very very select theaters. I know it didn't come around here, but uh, it, it just hit Netflix a couple of weeks ago. And I'm talking about Hush uh, from this year. Great, great horror flick. Uh, a couple of weekends ago, I think I told you guys that I watched The Darkness with Kevin Bacon, um, and it was just awful. Just, just uh, so far, one of the worst movies of the year. Uh, a movie where really n- nothing happens, no scares, 
and so I just I, I kind of had a night to myself, and I needed to wash the bad taste of the darkness out of my <laughs> mouth. Uh, and so I I've been hearing a lot about Hush, and um, I decided that it was time to watch it. And so uh, the the conceit is that uh, you know it's kind of a, a home invasion movie. Uh, this killer masked guy wants to come in and and kill this girl who's alone in a house, but she is deaf. Um, and so she can't hear, obviously, anything. She can't hear him, you know, tapping on the window, trying to get her attention, that sort of thing. Uh, and then so because of that, at times, we are also deaf. And so that kind of adds to the scares. Um, I read a really cool review of it on Roger Ebert at the end uh, of the review. The, the reviewer says, um, we don't watch these types of movies to see them reinvent the wheel. We just want to see how well the wheels can spin uh, in this movie. <laughs> spins and i couldn't agree more I, I think it um it's an hour and 23 long i think you could have cut 10 minutes maybe even 15 minutes from it uh and had a really really tight movie um and i think with any movie uh, especially feature length like this i think um there are certain decisions that characters make that are obviously to add to time that um would kind of frustrate uh, viewers who um, are not necessarily new to the genre, but definitely aren't uh, aware of those types of things. You know, the, the type of like college kids who get frustrated by that type of thing, um, who just can't kind of sit back and enjoy it. But mm-hmm. uh, good performances, great scares, the tension is fantastic. Um, there are there is a bit of a twist ending that obviously I won't spoil, but I think I think uh, it, it's it's kind of foreshadowed um, pretty clearly at the beginning, and I, and, I, and I think you'll kind of see that coming. But uh, I think I think the idea there is there, um, and I think it's fun, really really fun, really creepy, um, very dark. Uh, and I mean that visually, not not in tone or attitude. It's a very dark movie. Um, and so in in our living room where our our, our TV is, we have a big kind of like a bay window behind our couch. Uh, and about halfway through the movie, I was just like, I'm gonna close the curtains. <laughs> a little creeped out, which is which is a pretty high compliment that I can pay to a horror movie. And so nice. um, I liked it. I liked it a lot. Very very high recommend. That's awesome. Um, uh. That's awesome. I, I've heard that movie brought up a lot on Twitter and stuff once it hit Netflix, and I've been really looking forward to watching it, and that is going to make me watch it soon. Uh, Tiny, you recently watched it, didn't you? I did. I watched it yesterday uh, on Mike's recommendation. Um, I... I hate to say this. I wish I could. I wish I could agree, but I don't. I really. I didn't. <laughs> it was. It was fine. It. It was a fine movie, and and I think uh, the the metaphor of. Um, that you brought up of uh we just want to see the wheel spin um mm-hmm. it, the, i think i agree the wheel spun but it, it followed the exact same path of so many other wheels and i i it, it there wasn't enough there to make it unique for me um they tried i, I think the deaf mute thing was very uh was clever and, and i think it did add some 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 dynamic uh some dynamic scenes and some some different things. Um, I give them credit for that, but for me, it just wasn't enough. Um, I, I like. I think. I think the strangers is is a superior movie to this one by far. Um, yeah, oh yeah, I think so too. Okay, I think so too. I, um, and I might be coming from a place. 
you know, right after seeing the darkness, very, very <laughs> jaded about that. And also, you know, as, as many as I watch, I'm, I'm kind of disappointed in the amount of horror we get. And I, and I think that's what I mean about the wheel spinning well. Um, and I don't think strangers reinvents the wheel, but I, I think it, I think it was a new, uh, it was a new twist, a new type of turn for the wheel. Uh, and so I, I think I agree with you there and I, I feel like that's why the strangers is superior, but, mm-hmm. um, I think this one's pretty good, but go ahead. Uh, yeah, I mean, and I I will not argue at all that it was a bad movie because it wasn't. It it was it was good, and, and like it 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 does uh, scare the audience. And there's there's some some like kind of crushing scenes and some some scares and stuff like that. I, I mean, it's it deserves credit absolutely. Uh, I but I just I wasn't I wasn't even close to blown away by anything. It didn't it didn't. Uh, I, I was never on the edge of my seat or anything. It it uh, I don't know. It just didn't. It really didn't grip me it started very well like the first probably 20 25 minutes i was very hooked um but from there it just felt pretty standard to me Hmm. interesting it was interesting seeing john john gallagher jr in that role Mm -hmm. uh yeah kind of against type for 10 cloverfield lane yeah and 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 then the newsroom kind of plays a quirky dorky guy but he's (laughs) very different in this uh but yeah it's i mean definitely check it out I, i recommend people check it out Nice. I will have to check it out and revisit it maybe next week and and share my thoughts on it. Nice. You do a lot worse in Shocktober, for sure. True. Right. Okay, Tiny, uh, do you want to bring us with your puppery? I do. Um, If you cut back to about three weeks ago, uh, I rented the movie The Gunman, uh, starring uh, Sean Penn and second billing to Idris Elba for some reason. Um, so I, I, I wanted to see this movie. I'm, I'm kind of a mix and match fan of Sean Penn. Um, so I, I kind of wanted to see him in this and I remember looking at the, the preview and I was like, Oh my God, he is ridiculously ripped. Why does he look that way? He's as old as my parents. <laughs> um, and, and so I, I paid money to rent this movie. Uh, and, and I, I, I really wish I hadn't, um, you can check out my kind of mini live tweet of this movie. Uh, it was so bad, I decided to open up Twitter and and uh, kind of take some shots at it. Um, this movie's very, very bad. It has a 5.8 rating on IMDb. I would probably give it about three and a half, maybe four stars. Um, it, it just this movie gets so many things wrong. Um, it's it's just riddled with inaccuracy. Um, very. Uh, characters with very unclear motivations um and just a just a disassociated plot that just didn't i i just the motivations were just not there and if they were i didn't understand them uh and i think most people felt the same way um again the movie kind of started kind of like hush started pretty well like the first 10 or 15 minutes i was hooked i was like wow this is there's a cool cool little action scene and i was like all right very curious where this goes um and it just it just did not pay off at all um the the main character has uh comes down with a very uh very debilitating medical condition that kind of comes and goes but unfortunately it shows up at the most convenient times Uh. it's not something that just like it's it's just so it's just such a convenient deus ex machina throughout the movie and it's very it's just really cheap. That's the best way I can put it. Um, 
Idris Elba has second billing in this movie. No idea why. He does not show up until about an hour in the movie. He has less than 10 minutes of screen time. Uh, he's uh, I'm obviously an unabashed fan of his, and mm-hmm. he's very magnetic for the, the, the time that he is on screen, but I have no idea why he got second billing. Um, there's an impressive cast with Javier Bardem, Bray Winstone, Mark Rylance, who just won an Oscar. Um, they, they all did, did the best with what they had. Uh, I have no idea why Javier Bardem was in the movie. His character just was kind of thrust into the movie for no reason. I really didn't get it. Um, I, I really hated the, inac- the inaccuracies as well. Um, one of the biggest ones is that Sean Penn plays like this ex special forces character, um, you know, just like, just like the ultimate badass kind of guy. Uh, and so he's being pursued in this movie by other ex special force professionals. And he's trying to be very incognito cloak and daggerish. But meanwhile, the guy is walking around like major cities with like a digital camouflage backpack. Like just, he just like sticks out. He looks like he, he looks like a, a military professional, who's hiking through the mountains of Afghanistan, but he's on the streets of Barcelona. Like it just, it made no sense. I was like, yeah, that guy is not, is way more than he's trying to appear to be. It's just, it was just very, a very lazy movie. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of done tearing it down cause it's really just not worth <laughs> the time. Uh, it was really bad. I think I gave it, I think I gave it like a three and a half. Uh, out of I'm gonna 10 do, stars. I'm going to do you one better, man. I saw it in theaters. Did you? Ugh. Yeah. Ugh. Terrible. <laughs> I'm glad. Terrible. I'm glad you agree. Yeah. Jeez. I just didn't get it. I just didn't get it. I didn't get it either. I, it's it's uh it's one of those, you know, this is a this is a great cast how did this movie get made type of movies. Uh-huh. Apparently it's based on a book too. Uh I I'm curious if the book's any good. Hmm. I uh, hope so. That is a shame. I heard, I remember it kind of came and went in theaters. It was yeah. one of those, I think, a January release movie. I think so. And it just it just was not on my radar at all. And I will steer clear from it Please now. Please do. Yeah. Um, okay, so should I round us out? Please do. Do it. All right. So I mentioned this, I think, a couple weeks ago or a week or so ago, but I'm going to be on Film Schlub's uh, Film Talk podcast in soon um to talk about the movie green room uh with the host there and that should be up uh pretty soon but i'm going to go ahead and just bring up green room cuz it's it's kind of um it's kind of uniquely uh, uh fitting of this episode in particular because it's about a punk rock band um i haven't i haven't brought up green room have i uh no no okay Nope. I think you mentioned it in I passing, did, but yeah. you, de- you didn't go into depth at all. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Mike, you haven't seen this movie yet, have you? I haven't, and I, and I desperately want to. So. Okay. I think it's. I think it opened wide, so it should be playing in your area now. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, so anyway, this movie is the second movie from uh, Jeremy Saulnier, who did Blue Ruin, and like he is really, really carving a niche for himself as a genre filmmaker and it's it's really impressive to me uh green room is phenomenal it's it's really suspenseful very terrifying gruesome at times without being gratuitously so and it's just it's so good it's basically the story is i won't say too much about it but the story is a punk rock band plays a venue 
uh, run by uh, neo-Nazi skinheads, and then something happens that leads them to be trapped in the green room at the neo-Nazi's mercy, basically. And, I mean, my God, this movie is so good. <laughs> um, nice. It's It's just really tightly paced, and it is so suspenseful like i like the premise alone is is something that you makes you want to work out what they can do and what what's going to happen to get them uh to to for them to get out of this thing and it's it's really unique in that it puts you in the perspective of the band and in the perspective of the of the neo nazis the head of which played by uh Patrick Stewart uh, mm-hmm. In a role that it's like his his performance is just chilling and very, very, very Im- impressive, and it's it puts you in the perspective of, for the most part from the band, and it's it's something that you like you want to work out how they're going to get through, and it, it's really unpredictable in that manner. Nice, I'll I'll say that about it. It's just it's really well done. Um, like I said, you'll you can hear a full more in depth review. Um, of it from me on film schlubs in the in the coming weeks but to kind of br- tie it back to our main topic what is so interesting to me and is so impressive to me about this movie is that it is about a punk rock band and punk rock is not something that is really in my wheelhouse of interest or anything but the movie just puts you into this into this culture and this world that this band resides in and it, it uses all the vernacular, all the vocabulary, everything that is so steeped in this culture that I knew nothing about. And so so you would think that I would be a little at a loss there, but it's so fluid and so natural that it feels like I'm participating in this world and I'm witnessing this world and this lifestyle um, just organically unfolding in front of me. And it's just something that you don't really see in a movie. And, that, and that's why I love... Sonier's work is that he's at least in Blue Ruin and now Green Room. It's they're two independent movies that he made outside of like a studio system or, or whatever. Uh, he actually made Green Room uh, like after Blue Ruin kind of blew up in uh, um, I think Can or or no not Sundays I think it was Can um, on the festival circuit. Uh, he was getting offers from studios from so many studios to get into to get big high profile projects because he was very sought after but instead of picking that he's like okay well this is i have this idea for green room this is the this is the i can't do it in the studio system so i'm going to go ahead and make this movie and then go from there and and like take bigger projects and and things like that and that's something that i respect I respect the man a great deal for that because that's just in- incredible. The integrity that he had to make that decision when I can only imagine he was getting thrown offers all over the place. Mm-hmm. And this movie is just spectacular. The, like I said, the violence is happens so suddenly and it's so underplayed. But the visual aspect of it, like there are some, there are some things in this movie that kind of stick with me and made me clutch body parts in the theater mm. in sympathetic pain to what is happening on screen. <laughs> wow. Your butthole? Yes, my butthole, Mike. Yes. Your butthole? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I was, uh, it made everyone sitting around me very, feel very awkward because I just was stroking my butthole, but yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, it's fantastic. I, 
I, I'm going to heap praise upon it if you got unless you guys stop me and we can end the podcast. <laughs> but <laughs> it's definitely check it out. It's well worth uh, seeing. It's fantastic, and I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, what Jeremy Sonier has. Uh, lined up next and also uh Macon Blair who played the lead in Blue Ruin and is a childhood friend of Jeremy Saulnier is in this movie in a supporting role and I'm really looking forward to his career too because he's phenomenal in it and in Blue Ruin I'm so um, happy to hear all of that yeah <laughs> yeah definitely check out Green Room everyone so yeah nice cool Whew. yeah so uh that about does it for us here at the Obsessive Viewer and uh, do we do not have a topic for next week, do we, guys? Nothing. <laughs> no. Uh, We're anything? Going to get on Skype and stare at each other, right? Yeah. <laughs> vault guys... Part Four. What is it? The Vault Part Four. The... <laughs> oh, oh, that's actually not a bad idea. I haven't done one of those in a while. Yeah. We might do that. We might do that. If you have a suggestion in the next two days after hearing this, uh, let us know what you think about what we should do next week. And other than that, I think we can go ahead and wrap it up. Also, uh, listen to Anthology, my solo side project podcast, uh, exploring science fiction anthology storytelling during TV's first golden age, starting with The Twilight Zone. I'm still uh, hitting the ground with that. And next week's episode is, might be my best one yet. So nice. check that out. Yeah, I'm excited. Okay. Uh, that about do it? Yep. Okay. That'll do it. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, thanks for listening, guys. Thanks. Thanks. That's when it's back to the lab again, yo. This old spaghetti. Better go have some spaghetti. And I hope it don't be ready. This is how you want spaghetti. It's ready. You better never let it go. You only get one spaghetti. Not miss your chance to blow. Cause spaghetti comes once in a lifetime. You better lose this house. You want spaghetti. It's ready. Thank you for listening to The Obsessive Viewer, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. You can find more of our episodes at ovpodcast.com, and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast app. The Obsessive Viewer's theme song is An Eclipse of Events and is provided by Loudlike from their EP, Mistakes We Must Make. You can find that and more great music from them on iTunes and like their Facebook page at facebook.com slash loudlikemusic. Any and all feedback on the podcast is encouraged. You can email the hosts individually at Matt, Tiny, or Mike at ObsessiveViewer.com or send an email to the podcast in general at podcast at ObsessiveViewer.com. Check out the Obsessive Viewer blog at ObsessiveViewer.com where we post movie and TV reviews and the occasional editorial about the business of entertainment. You can also like us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash The Obsessive Viewer and follow us on Twitter at Obsessive Viewer, at Obsessive Tiny, and at I Am Mike White. If you want more obsessive content in your life, check out our sister site, ObsessiveBookNerd.com, for book reviews, author spotlights, and a general celebration of reading. Finally, if you're philosophically curious, check out Tiny's side project podcast, The Secular Perspective, which explores the concepts of faith, religion, and existence from the perspective of secular hosts. You can find that at thesecularperspective.com and subscribe to the podcast on the podcatcher of your choice. Again, thank you so much for listening. We love you. Be excellent to each other.